Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. we sit before you with hopeful hearts, and we sit before you this morning with tired hearts. In the midst of all that is exhausting, help us to remain open to your spirit's formation of that which is truly good, even now. Amen. And please be seated. The season of Easter and the Gospel of John are both celebrations of life. And in his attempt to celebrate life, John intentionally mimics the creation account of Genesis. However, rather than seven days of creation, which conclude with God resting, in John there are seven miracles, followed by a resurrected Jesus who meets with and talks to Mary Magdalene in a garden. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) It is a good song. The imagery of Jesus and Mary in a garden is a picture of new life. New life in a new world that slowly builds in John's gospel, not day by day, but miracle by miracle. And so throughout the season of Easter, we're in a sermon series titled New Creations, which is exploring the goodness of Jesus' life in this world, one miracle at a time. And it's through John's seven miracles that we're offered a window into resurrected living. What does it mean to live a resurrected life today? Well, John shows us this miracle by miracle. Miracle number one, water to wine. Miracle number two, healing the dying. Miracle number three, caring for the sick. And this morning, miracle number four, bread from heaven. I don't know when you grew up. I grew up in the 80s. And in the 80s, every child didn't get an award for nothing. You had to really work for it. And so when I was in kindergarten and in first grade and in second grade and probably even into third grade, I can't tell you how much pride I felt at the end of year assembly because all of the kids would be sitting on that cafeteria gym floor, you know, looking up at that stage and the parents were seated behind us in their chairs and many of them would take the day off of work to come to the assembly. And at the very end of the assembly, they would give that final award, perfect attendance. And they would call my name along with a couple other people and we would go forward and we would get our award. It was usually a ribbon, sometimes a certificate. And I would look out and I'd see my parents and they would smile so proudly. And then I'd go sit. Fourth grade, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about perfect attendance. Fifth grade, sixth grade, it really started to feel embarrassing. I had perfect attendance all the way through junior high, even into my freshman year. Now, to be clear, this wasn't because I was perfectly healthy. I was sick all the time. In fact, I had strep throat usually about twice a year all the way until junior high when I got my tonsils taken out. But my mom, I think, because we had so many kids in the house, she was just like, you're going to school. (laughs) 
So I would go to school, have a cold, go to school, have strep throat, go to school, throw up in the nurse's office, just send them home after school. I was always at school, perfect attendance. And I couldn't have told you this while I was growing up, but the experience of going to school no matter what, the experience of going to school no matter how I felt, the experience of going to school despite my lack of health or energy or vitality, it aligned really well with the form of Christianity that I grew up in. What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would self-sacrifice, of course. Well, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would give to everyone in need, of course. What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would break and bleed and die so that others could live, of course. And for some reason, it never really occurred to me that I could be anyone else other than Jesus. Like, like in my mind, I, I couldn't be the sick or the hungry or the poor that Jesus cared for so tenderly. And so I, I recall that old hymn. It was my favorite hymn growing up, Onward Christian Soldier. Anyone remember that? <laughs> Onward Christian Soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe forward into battle, see his banners go. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching us to war. This is the, the course. With the cross of Jesus going on before. Brandon, I'm giving you some ideas here. As the sign of triumphs, Satan, host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices. Loud your anthems raise. What the saints establish that I hold for true, what the saints believe that I believe too, long as earth endureth, men the faith will hold, kingdoms, nations, empires in destruction rolled. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. I'll spare you the entirety of the hymn. You get the point. It's a whole way of seeing the world. Right and wrong, saved and damned, us versus them. And because I was told that I was right and saved and part of us, my work in the world was clear. I was supposed to be Jesus in the world. Which makes me want to ask, what are we to do when we're not feeling very Jesus-like in the world? What are we to do when we're not feeling very right or saved or part of us? What are we to do when our perspective on the world isn't abundance? but exhaustion. Onward, Christian soldier. Grin and bear it. Life in Christ. Surely there must be a better way to live out the way of Jesus than a white-knuckled approach. From John, beginning in verse 5, when he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, six months' wages would not be enough to buy each of them even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? What are they among so many people? Can anyone identify with the disciples in this story? There is so much need out there, war and drought and houselessness and divisive politics, and, and that's all just meta stuff. I mean, how about our own scarce lives? Like parents, have you enjoyed a moment of quiet or calm or serene peacefulness in your soul since COVID began? Any parents want to raise their hand? Or about that stress we all feel when trying to decide on going out or having someone over or going on a trip? I mean, yeah, sure, there's five barley loaves and two fish, but what's that in the midst of so much need? And when I say need, I've struggled as a Christian to nurture a tender kindness toward myself. 
And so the needs of others quickly become overwhelming and paralyzing. I mean, I'm stressed and tired and struggling, and and now in Jesus' name, I'm supposed to break and bleed? What if all of my bones are already broken? What if all of my blood has all run out? Oh, Mike, that's a bit dramatic, isn't it? That's actually the self-talk that I hear in my own head, in my experiences of scarcity. Certainly you can do a little more, Mike. Give a little more, be a little more. And it's true, I probably can. We humans are resilient beings. But is that what's necessary? Is that what's required to be a Christian and to follow after Jesus in this world? And perhaps more importantly, is that even a good way of living that bears good fruit? British journalist Oliver Berkman refers to this whole idea of trying harder as the ironic effect. Quoting Harvard psychologist Dan Wagner, he writes, we see a rut coming up in the road ahead and somehow proceed to steer our bike right into it. We make a mental note not to mention a sore point in conversation and then cringe in horror as we blurt out the exact thing that we weren't going to talk about. We carefully cradle the glass of red wine as we cross the room at a stranger's house, all the while thinking, don't spill and then juggle it onto the carpet under the gaze of our host. You know the experience, right? In a seminal study on how trying too hard can backfire, Wagner and his team at the University of Virginia had subjects hold a small pendulum over a glass grid. One group was instructed simply to hold the pendulum steady, a moderately challenging task requiring fine motor control, while another group was specifically told not to let the pendulum swing along the horizontal axis. As the researchers predicted, the group that was given the more specific instructions were less successful at preventing the pendulum from swinging horizontally. And from another study led by a team of psychologists at the University of Toronto, they recruited 100 students, assigned them to one of three groups. One was given strict instructions to avoid chocolate. One was issued a week-long ban on foods containing vanilla and was not given any dietary restrictions the other, the third group. At the end of the week, when the students were brought back to the lab and offered various foods, the ones who had been chocolate deprived consumed more chocolate than any other group. And both of the groups whose diet was restricted reported more and stronger cravings for the forbidden foods. It just somehow happens inside of us. And from one more study, this time at Michigan State, there are two contradictory theories as to why athletes choke when it matters most. They become distracted and lose their focus or they focus too hard, the ironic effect. A study by Michigan State University psychologists Sean Bellock and Thomas Carr found that it's pressure that comes from explicit monitoring of performance that paradoxically impairs performance. Now that's a good line. Explicit monitoring of performance paradoxically impairs performance. You see, explicit monitoring of performance often results in an ironic effect, which is to say that trying harder can actually undermine the good that we're trying to accomplish in the world and in our own lives. Onward, Christian soldier. Grin and bear it. Break and bleed again and again, over and over. Well, what if such living doesn't actually work? What if a white-knuckled approach actually circumvents Christ-like lives in our world today? I mean, this has been my experience. When I give beyond what I have to give, or when I extend beyond the length of these two arms and this one body and this enormous world, I can promise you that I don't feel very good inside. 
I don't feel kind or happy or abundant when I'm trying so hard to be and do all of the things that everyone around me needs me to be and to do. And so I think it's a religious fallacy to believe that kindness or happiness or abundance or even goodness is capable of rising from hearts that are not themselves filled with kindness or happiness or abundance or goodness. So what are we to do? If trying harder has an ironic effect, and if squeezing goodness from our lives like water from a sponge is proven to turn us into dry and cracked sponges, and if life continues to be difficult and draining and altogether overwhelming, what is our way forward? What are our options? And what does Christ following actually look like or even mean? Well, for a moment, I'd like to stick with the science and then try to consider this morning's gospel reading in light of the science. According to the authors of Michigan State University, their study on athletes, the authors concluded that when trained athletes become self-conscious and think too hard about the motions that they need to perform, their intense effort gets in the way of their own muscle memory, which actually lowers their chances of succeeding. It's a remarkable conclusion. The authors concluded that when trained athletes become self-conscious and think too hard about the particular motions that they need to perform, their intense effort actually gets in the way of their own muscle memory, which lowers their chances of succeeding. And so according to the study, trying can actually get in the way of muscle memory. For example, the wine illustration that I mentioned earlier, we're all very capable of walking across a floor with wine in a glass, unless that carpet's white and people are watching us and we're very concerned and focused on that glass. Trying so hard not to spill wine while walking can actually hinder the muscle memory that we build over time, which is more than capable of helping us walk without spilling, unless we try too hard. Fundamental to this point is muscle memory. According to the science, muscle memory is the act of committing a specific motor task into memory through repetition that becomes so natural we don't actually have to try anymore. Now, when talking about muscle memory, we quickly find ourselves in the world of formation. Because you see, formation, like muscle memory, is different. It's very different from actual behavior. That is to say, there is an us, right? There's an us that is deeply and pervasively us. It's the us that has been shaped and formed by years of living life in this world. And this shaped and formed us is different from us trying really hard to do something or to be something that is beyond the us that we have actually become in the world. I hope I'm making sense here because it's really important. 2016 Trump. 2020 and up until now COVID. War, climate change, voting access, abortion rights, LGBTQ protections, incarceration reform, and on top of it all, our own overwhelming personal lives has us all on edge. Perhaps a better way to say it is that life has us all at our edge. So many of us are just right at our limits. And as we now know all too well, adrenaline can only last for so long, allowing us to do and to be all that we want to do and to be. And so rather than continuing to try and try and try harder, which leads to the ironic effect, aka explicit monitoring of performance that paradoxically impairs performance, what if a more profitable way forward is to let go of trying so that we can lean into forming? 
Like, what if today's exhaustion and ever-increasing need could be viewed as an invitation to day by day continue becoming the kind of humans that we desire to be in this world? This brings us to the nature of formation, which Jesus invites his followers into later in this morning's gospel passage. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus withdraws to the wilderness while his disciples get in a boat and they cross a lake. Uh, This is the part where Jesus walks across the water to meet them. We'll talk about that next week. After they get to the other side of the lake, they have a conversation about the feeding of the 5,000 that we just read and heard about this morning. At the other side, they meet up, and as they're having the conversation, uh, the disciples say, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? And six months' wages would not be enough bread for them to get a little. And there's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? That's what they said about the bread and the feeding. Now, here's where things get really interesting. Jesus, reflecting on that conversation, says to them, I am the bread of life. And then he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. And he says, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats of me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate in the wilderness and died, but the one who eats of this bread will live forever. These are astonishing words. Jesus makes himself into bread and wine, and he says, eat fully and drink extravagantly, for I am yours. This is nothing less than revolutionary. As the reflection of divinity in Christian thought, this is really important, Jesus is not demanding, be, be bread, be wine, break, bleed, be me in the world, do all of these things on my behalf. In this story, Jesus is saying, no, he is inviting, eat fully and drink extravagantly, for I am yours. Eat fully and drink extravagantly, for I am yours. Eat fully and drink extravagantly, for I am yours. And this is where formation comes in. And it's a primary reason for why I think religion can still be deeply good in this world. Because the stories that we tell and the tables around which we feast profoundly shape, profoundly form our lives. Like growing up, every Friday, we didn't have a lot of money, but every Friday night for a couple year period, my parents would take us out to Pietro's Pizza. I remember getting in the car, getting in my seat. I remember the way we drove. I remember as we were walking in, dad would give each of us 50 cents to play the games. I remember going through the little bar and getting the salad that had those little kidney beans that had some weird sauce on them that I just couldn't get enough of. Still to this day, when somebody says Friday night, I'll sometimes think to myself, Pietros, (laughs) there's still one in Milwaukee right by a little bowling alley. They have that nasty salad. (laughs) It's deep in me, Friday night Pietros, because it happened over and over and over again. You see, if your heart hears words like this enough, this is me for you, this is me for you, this is me for you, it actually has a formation effect on our souls. In the Christian tradition, Sunday after Sunday and month after month and year after year and decade after decade, we hear these words, this is me for you. This is me for you. If you hear these words often enough and if you internalize these words deeply enough, they actually begin to have the effect of shaping the way in which a person sees the world. It's a world in which the divine ultimate reality is, is generous and self-giving. 
Feel that in your soul, know it deep in your bones, and the experience of abundance slowly over time begins to be the place from which we live because we've been shaped. We've been formed by Christ. Similarly, regularly gather around a table with ever-increasing diversity, experience the belonging of every person, especially the most different, and suddenly belonging and voices of diversity become a formed experience that we expect in life because we know it's good. Similarly, observing seasons year after year, summer to fall to winter to spring, always spring, is to slowly over time begin trusting that death must give way to life. It just must. Or to Christianize the seasons, to progress from the darkness of Advent to the light of Christmas. Or to progress from the suffering and death of Lent to the light and life of Easter. Every year after year after year is to slowly over time to begin trusting that today's darkness may actually be a passageway to new life. And to be clear, this kind of growth takes time. Formation is a long process. It's not performance based on adrenaline, nor is it behavior based on expectations of how we must be like Jesus in the world. You see, formation is not a quick fix. Formation is inherently slow like a seed that we plant in the soil. And remember, our parents, Adam and Eve, have taught us an important lesson, which is instant perfection is not only impossible, it's also a curse. Perfection now is too much pressure. I'd like to say it's inhumane, which is to say it's non-human. It's, it's unhuman. Because we can only grow slowly through the stories and tables and time that give shape and form to our lives. Which, I think, is to say that resurrected living isn't something that we pray for or believe in, and then poof, we experience it fully now. Instead, resurrected living, like a perspective on abundance, is worked into our lives, over time, in community, through the stories that we tell, the tables that we gather around, and the ways in which we mark our days. <sighs> May Eastertide fill us with a soul, a shaped experience, a formation of abundance, that life is ours today. Let us pray. Lord, we sit before you with hopeful hearts, tired hearts, and in the midst of our exhaustion, help us to remain open to your spirit's formation of that which is truly good, even now. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.